88.7 FM, WAGP Beaufort, Hilton Head Island, Savannah, a ministry of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, on the web at WAGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Welcome this hour to the Bible line. Maybe you are a first time listener for the next hour. We take questions that people have as they study God's word, or maybe they like biblical counsel on a particular issue they're facing and want to know what the Bible says. If we can be of help. By God's grace, we'll do our best. All you need to do is pick up the phone locally. The number is 843-525-1859. 525-1859. Of course, the area code is 843 here for this part of South Carolina. And uh, we have people who listen through the Internet. We live stream WAGP at WAGP.net. And uh, a number of people will email us here directly into the studio, and you can do so. The email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at net. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply uh, dictate the question. Let's go ahead and get started, Rick. I think we already have a caller on the line waiting. We do indeed. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning. Good Thanks for calling. Thank you. Um, even though we just finished, not that long ago, a three-year study of Romans, I went back and, at your advice, did, and started going through and studying it again. And it's amazing how much more I comprehended just just from our study at with your sermons. And I just, I mean, I, I, I read the Bible a lot, but I've, I've never, ever read a book like the Book of Romans. And it's just, it's touched my heart so much and convicted me of so much and i just i I just like you know if you could share pastor brogy you know why everyone should read the book of romans and study it well romans is uh what many have called the mount everest of the new testament uh it is uh, a book that uh, gives the fullest explanation of any book in the new testament concerning salvation concerning our sanctification as well as uh, in a biblical explanation concerning the Jewish people and the role that they play in God's unfolding of the ages. So it's a really, really important book. Many, many people have had their lives totally transformed. Uh, The great Protestant uh, reformer Martin Luther was converted through a study of the book of Romans as he saw a lot of improprieties that were unfolding in his day in the Roman Catholic Church it forced him to go to the scripture. And as he went to the scripture uh, and he read the first chapter of Romans that the just shall live by faith, uh, that just uh, taunted him. And, and, uh, but the Holy spirit helped him to understand that. And he came to genuine faith. John Calvin was converted through reading the book of Romans. He was a Roman Catholic priest and 
uh, really wanted to understand truth, and God used Romans. Uh, so there you have the founder of the Lutheran Church and the founder of what we today modern call Presbyterians. Uh, Charles and John Wesley were uh, changed instrumentally through the Book of Romans. John Wesley was actually just south of here in Savannah, and he took the boat ride over from England to reach the heathen Indians. And if you go to the city of Savannah, there's a statue there in the place where he preached. And he was down in the Brunswick, Brunswick area and some other places as well. And of course, it's not until the boat ride, boat ride back to England that he begins to fear for his own salvation. They're in a torrential a downpour, thunderstorm, the waves are huge, and their little craft seems like it's going to sink. But he uh, meets some Moravian believers who are born again. Unfortunately, the Moravian church uh, is, for the most part, dead and has totally lost the gospel and the few places that you can even find them anymore. But those Moravian brothers spoke of grace and security that they could find in Christ. And it's third Uh, John Wesley's heart. Of course, he goes back to England. Uh, He goes to the famous Aldersgate Chapel, and he's actually, on the day he walks in that evening, he's listening to uh, the introduction to Luther's commentary that he wrote on the Book of Romans. And as he hears Luther's testimony, to quote Wesley, he said his heart is strangely warmed. Technically, he never left the Church of England, But, of course, came back to America, uh, rode up and down the East Coast on horseback. They said he rode over 80,000 miles. And, of course, uh, as he led thousands of people to Christ, he had a very methodical way of following up those new believers. Uh, He recognized there were some basics that they needed to understand. And that was wise. Uh, We do the same at Community Bible Church with our discovery class Nonetheless, because he was so methodical, they called them Methodists. And so in many ways, really the founder of the Methodist Church. What I'm trying to say is that anyone who study, studies the book of Romans, their, their life will be changed. You'll never be the same. And to work your way through it verse by verse is uh, really extremely helpful. And all the messages that we did are online. If you go to searchthescriptures.org, we go through every single line, every single verse of Romans. And uh, if you are not faint and hard and serious about trying to get a handle on this, I, I would really recommend it. I think it would be a great study. Anyway, I appreciate that question and comment. Let's go to the uh, next question that's coming. All right, 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. A uh, caller last week uh, didn't get their answer quite, uh, because they called right at the uh, last minute there, but they'd like to know why Community Bible Church had a magician perform last month. Isn't that against Scripture? Well, believe me, if it was against Scripture, we wouldn't do it. I can promise you that. Uh, I suppose the term magic can be used uh, somewhat loosely, and uh, maybe um, we should use other terms, and we did. We didn't call him a magician. We called him what he calls himself an illusionist. And uh, so, yes, uh, magic in the biblical definition is an evil thing. Uh, It often employs the uh, satanic realm and the occult. He's not a magician in that sense. He was an illusionist. In fact, uh, the illusionists in our country, uh, like the one we had, Harris uh, III, I guess he called himself, uh, men like Andre Cole, have done actually a great service to the body of Christ 
and that they have unfolded a lot of the occult practices, not to mention some things that people have done in the realm of magic to try to discredit Christianity. So they've become apologists of sorts in that particular field and uh, shows, of course, among other things, that there are some things that are not illusions. Uh, the resurrection is not an illusion. <laughs> and uh, they, they do a great job in presenting the gospel. Andre Cole, now in his 80s, has presented the gospel to 10 million people. 10 million people using illusions. Why? Because, well, unchurched people are fascinated uh, by sometimes the illusions that they can come up with. Andre Cole, for instance, uh, was the illusionist who invented the trick. And, and he would tell you, he said, anything I'm doing on this platform, you could do with uh, some training and 30 years of practice. It used to be one of his famous lines. But he was the one, the illusionist who came up with the uh, trick to make the Statue of Liberty disappear. And of course, uh, he did that on a stages across the world. And he did, did that at Community Bible Church years ago, made a 15-foot Statue of Liberty, quote-unquote, disappear. Taught that trick to David, David Copperfield. And uh, if you remember in the 80s, uh, when President Reagan was serving our nation, uh, he made the, quote-unquote, Statue of Liberty disappear. Did it disappear? Of course not. It was simply an illusion. So um, these things are, uh, that's a good question, fair question, and I appreciate you asking it. But I hope you would know that uh, we would never do anything that God would dictate as evil. And we didn't have a magician in the biblical uh, definition of the word. But like anything else, words find their meanings in in the context that they're used. And sometimes, you know, you can have a guy who does a card trick or pulls a rabbit out of a hat and we call him a magician, uh, you know, but they're not magicians in the occultic sense uh, that the Bible uses the term in the old English of the King James. Good question. Let's go to the next one. Our next question comes from Betty in Crawfordsville, Indiana. I would like to know what are some scriptures concerning gambling? She writes, I realize gambling is not mentioned specifically in the Bible, but I know there are uh, verses there that relate to gambling? Well, it's a good question. Um, God tells us that there's different ways to acquire wealth. Uh, one is inheritance. Proverbs, uh, I just read it a couple of days, speaks about a good man who leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Uh, and so sometimes uh, you have acquired things, you know, Aunt Sally dies and she leaves you $10,000 and or your mother dies and she leaves you some money. Uh, so that's one way. The principal way, of course, that we acquire wealth or money or the things that we need to live on is uh, hard work. And Proverbs is a great book that is especially helpful in teaching the next generation how to work hard. And, and I have a concern for that in the day that we live in. Uh, so many kids are so captivated by the electronics and video games and things like that that they don't know how to work. They don't even know how to break a sweat. And if you're uh, a dad and you're not a single mom, that's part of your responsibility uh, to teach your children how to work hard. Uh, Solomon is basically, <laughs> excuse me, is basically training his son on how to, to work hard by the advice that he gives. Uh, the, the third way in which you can uh, obtain wealth is through investment. Uh, I have a course uh, the, called The Theology of Money, and we deal with what the Bible first says about stewardship, what it says about saving, giving, debt, 
uh, investing and planning. And we talk in that course about having the right to invest. There are people who want to invest money, so to speak, but they are not good stewards in other realms. Uh, They have all kinds of debt and things like that. And so we go through the biblical priorities in that course. But, you know, if all investing were wrong, then uh, Jesus would not have said in the parable, the talents. Of course, a talent was a measure of silver. Well, you could have at least put my money in the bank where it could have collected some some interest. But gambling is really a form of covetousness. It's, it's really different. It's built on a faulty pr- premise. It's really a form of thievery, I suppose you could say, even stealing. Uh, if you think about it, legitimate business is a win-win kind of thing. Uh, you buy some product for me for $10. I get the $10. You get the product. Uh, nobody loses. We both win. But in gambling, uh, someone is losing. And really what motivates gambling is covetousness. It's a form of of greed. Uh, We just studied this past Sunday from Luke chapter 12, where Jesus said, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, against every form of covetousness. For not even when one has an abundance, does his life consist of the things that he owns. Uh, The um, 10th commandment, of course, is you shall not covet. And when Jesus gave the greatest of all the commandments, he said to love God with your whole heart and mind. And the second is similar to it because it's an expression of loving God. And of course, gambling gambling breaks the second commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It breaks it because it's an illegitimate way in which to gain wealth. It's not one of God's ways. And it destroys families. It wrecks homes. And there are many expressions of gambling. You know, I was in... Uh, and Mark yesterday on my day off and went in there to get some gas for the lawnmower. And, and I saw the man in front of me and he was buying, I don't know, it looked like about 30 lottery tickets. And it was kind of sad. He went out and got into a old beat up broken truck and his wife was there and his kids were there and it looked like they were living on a shoestring. And he's obviously, you know, hoping for the best that he's going to win big And it's really interesting, too, if you just, I suppose you could go on the Internet and Google it. I've read a number of articles over the last few years of all these people who've won the lottery and how in a short period of time they've lost it all. The money that they've won is gone. Uh, And it's not by accident, I think, because uh, it's an illegitimate way in which to acquire wealth. It's not God's ways. God does not want us to gamble, either acquire wealth through investment Uh, through inheritance, or most often and typically simply through hard work. And so, anyway, I hope that helps. It's a good question. All right. Neil from San Antonio, Texas, writes, A creation science lecture is claiming the King James Version used the Masoretic text and not the Latin Vulgate or Septuagint in determining the translation choice of the word unicorn. I think you said the King James Version used the Septuagint when I asked a question about Proverbs on the Bible line. I'm confused on which is correct. You mentioned you've read several books on the King James Version only debate, and several are lacking in scholarship. Can you please recommend which books on the King James Version only debate are the most accurate? Well, you're really asking several questions here. Uh, When we speak about the King James translation of the Bible being based on the Masoretic text, that, that does not mean that they did not um, interplay with other types of translations that could have been based on, you know, another 
uh, uh, another ancient text that we God has given us in which we learn the scripture. Uh, and the reason they would consult other translations, even outside of English or Latin or Greek or Aramaic, in which the three languages in which the Bible was written, was to try to understand what the Hebrew word meant, what the Greek word meant. If you actually look in a 1611 translation of the King James, and on the 400th anniversary in 2011, uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, anniversary editions of the King James that was done, and some that were done uh, just as it was originally printed. And of course, even in 1611, uh, there were two editions. There was the 1611A edition and the 1611B edition. They put one out and they went right back to translating. And then in 1611, later in the year, they put out a second translation with further changes. When you read the 1611 edition, and if you read the original preface, and you can, I'm sure, look that up online, there's a paragraph in there which I cover in my course on bibliology. Uh, bibliology is the doctrine of the Bible. How do we get our Bible? Uh, they wrote in there that they admitted there was a number of uh, words that they were uncertain as to how to translate them. And so because of that, they um, consulted, you know, different Hebrew scholars that were, of course, uh, not a lot in that day when they were um, translating the Bible, but they were just unsure on some things. And they admitted in the 1611 translation that there would be later editions that would come out that would clarify and maybe better represent what God originally uh, said in terms of what he wrote. And so again, a good translation of the Bible, all it does is it asks, what does the original me, uh, say so that I can put it into the receptor language? And that's the challenge with any translation. The Hebrew word that you're dealing with for unicorn is the Greek, uh, is the Hebrew word ra'im. And the question becomes, what does the word ra'im, when it refers to this animal, mean? Um, some will translate it uh, wild ox. The old English translated it unicorn. Uh, whatever animal it was, it was an animal that is today extinct. Uh, so some would say, well, this was the uh, auroch uh, or the urus that is now extinct. Uh, the King James said it was the unicorn. How did they come to that decision? Well, again, they were uncertain as to the meaning of the Hebrew word. Because whatever animal it was, and by the way, it's a real animal. It's not some mythological animal. In the book of Job and in some other places, it's associated with real animals like peacocks and goats and donkeys and horses and eagles. And so it's a real animal. The question is, what animal is he describing? And so the translators of the King James, not uh, sure how to translate this Hebrew word Ra'im, went to the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was uh, the first edition was done around 250 years before Christ. And of course, the reason they did it was because a lot of people had lost their ability to speak Hebrew. And so they read a Greek translation of the Bible. And uh, the thought, too, was, well, those were Jews who were closer to the time frame uh, of this animal, and they maybe would better understand. And so they actually translated the Hebrew word ra'im with the Greek word monakeros. 
And so mono, we get our word one, keros, horn, literally a one-horned animal. Um, later, there was a translation that was done by Jerome, the 4th century AD, called the Latin Vulgate. And he took the uh, Greek Bible and he took the Greek Old Testament and translated the word monokeros for reim into unicornis, unicorn. So a one-horned animal, often pictured like a horse with a horn coming out of his head. Uh, it's probably, that's probably a better translation to say a one-horned animal. Uh, because again, those who lived during the time of the Septuagint uh, would have been closer to Jews from ages past and would have probably better understood the word. Uh, because typically your auric is a, you know, a two-horned bull that is today extinct. But uh, this is um, a translation of one horn. Now, the fact that there's a one-horned animal is not unusual. There are many one-horned animals, so to speak, even in the fish realm. I, I used to always be fascinated by the swordfish. When I was a child, they would always, almost always in the A&P supermarket, have a swordfish out on ice. And you'd come in, and I'd always kind of look at the swordfish and this sword per- protruding from its uh from its head, or the rhinoceros is a one-horned animal, so to speak. So, again, uh, there's some debate as to what it means, uh, but it was a real animal, whatever it was. We don't know. It's today extinct. Probably uh, the translation unicorn is not a bad translation in light of the Septuagint, another ancient translation. Uh, There are some books out there that uh, aren't really well done on the King James only debate. They're really an argument more from ignorance than anything else. I mean, it gets almost cultish where some people think you can only become a Christian through the King James Bible uh, because that's the only pure translation. Of course, today, when you see these signs in the back of a car, you know, 1611 only, they're not even reading the 1611. They're actually reading the fifth edition. It came out again in 1613. Uh, Technically, that was the third edition again in 1638 and so forth. They're reading the 1768 translation. And if you compare the 1768 translation today, we call the old King James in deference now to the new King James that came out in the 70s, uh, the New Testament, I think it was 80, where the entire Bible was released. Um, The old King James of uh, today is really a lot different than the 1611. In fact, there's about 100,000 changes, not because God's word changes. His word is forever settled in heaven, but the English language was changing so fast that they needed to ask, well, what word today? And so sometimes, you know, the Bible is difficult for a Christian to read when they're reading even out of the 1768 Old King James translation, because there's a lot of archaic words in there. You know, you read in Philippians 4 in the King James, be careful for nothing. Well, look, be careful when you drive your car today and when you cross the street, be careful about a lot of things. What do you mean be careful for nothing? Well, today we'd say be anxious for nothing or be worried about nothing. But the word anxious and worried didn't exist when the King James translation of the Bible was done. So the way you rendered the Greek was be careful for nothing. Um, and that's, that was good, especially if you lived back then. So a modern literal translation of the Bible is really most helpful. And so Bible translations fall on different spectrums from 
paraphrases to um, medium paraphrases to more literal translations. Uh, it's not by accident that a lot of the Bible teachers in this country, expositor Bible teachers, use the New American Standard because it's so precise uh, to the original. And that's the one I teach, uh, teach out of because it's so helpful. Uh, I, by God's grace, I've been able to study the original languages of Hebrew and Greek. I did not learn Aramaic in seminary. There's only a few chapters in the Bible and just a couple sentences in all the New Testament that are in Aramaic. But I did learn Hebrew and Greek. And when I read the original and I read the English text, the New American Standard is so, so very, very precise. It's extremely useful. If you want to read a good scholarly book on the argument, D.A. Carson wrote a book on the King James argument. Um, and I'm sure you could find that used. that might not even be in print anymore. He's a pretty prolific author. Um, most books only make a one printing. Occasionally a book makes two or three, uh, but still it's good work. And if you go to half.com, that's a great place to find used Christian books where, you know, some books have been printed several times over, uh, like the, um, People ask me sometimes for a good overall commentary, a general commentary of the Bible, and I will often point them to the Bible Knowledge Commentary, which, you know, costs about $90 for the single New Testament volume, but you could probably find it online at half.com for about $15 plus shipping because it's been around for 30 years. So anyway, great question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and Deborah from Guyton, Georgia, writes, Not too long ago, I heard you say something in regard to Beth Moore. I was wondering about that because some ladies at the church I attend invited me to come to a Beth Moore Bible study. I've done her study in the past, but that has been about 10 years ago. I had a pastor in the past stop Beth Moore Bible studies, but I can't remember why. Thank you for your help. Well, I have no doubt that Beth Moore is our sister in Christ, and you'll meet her in heaven. So she's not, you know, off to the point where she's like some cult leader uh, that denies, you know, historical biblical truth. But she definitely has adopted in her teaching style some things that are less than orthodox. So you have a number of people like John MacArthur, you know, no way, Jose, are you going to have one of uh, her studies in my church? Or Alistair Begg, who you listen to here daily as well on WAGP. He won't allow a Beth Moore study in his church either. Why? Because she's a little too heavy on, and by the way, we don't either. Um, and, you know, this was before I'd ever heard any of those guys in terms of decisions that they've made concerning Beth Moore. When I first saw her one of her studies, someone said, hey, I was thinking of doing it, and uh, I know the elders need to approve, you know, small group material to make sure it's sound, and so I I read uh, an initial study that she'd done on the tabernacle, and it was obvious that her intentions were well, but there was a lot of things that were just in error. Uh, She was calling some uh, Hebrew words Greek words, and she just wasn't very well-trained, But not to mention that at that time, I felt like the focus was really not true women's ministry. And that's what we were trying to accomplish. And there's a lot that's being done under the umbrella of women's ministry today that really is not sound. And so people leave Beth Moore conferences not thinking, well, I want to do a a better job in being a great wife and raising my children and nurturing them and 
bringing them up in the discipline of the Lord. No, they, they leave more with the mindset, I, I'd like to be a Bible teacher like her and travel the country. And, and that's not what you're trying to accomplish. That's not the Titus 2 model that God gives us for women's ministry. Uh, beyond that, though, she has a lot of kind of existential theology, experiential base. You know, God spoke to me. God said this. And it's almost like a dictation. That's really, really dangerous. Um, that's virtually what every cult is uh, based on. Some extra revelation. God said. And now I know sometimes Christians loosely use the term. Well, you know. God spoke to my heart today, and what you mean usually is God impressed my heart from the Word of God, or God took a a truth that's been there all the time, but He illumined it to me. We don't have revelation today. All the revelation that God is going to give has been given. The canon of Scripture is closed, but God does give illumination. So when a Christian says, I had a revelation, he didn't really have a revelation. He had an, an illumination. God took what he had already revealed and wrote in scripture and he illumined it to your heart. He, you saw it, it jumped off the page and he gave you a promise or a sin to repent of or uh, something that he wanted you to do. Uh, that's really different. But when someone um, like uh, Jesus is calling, you know, a, a, pop, a popular book that came out a few years ago, which you can read my uh, evaluation and critique of that book at searchthescriptures.org. Again, a very dangerous book where people in the first person are putting statements about what God says. Don't put words into God's mouth. You don't want to do that. That becomes very extra revelational. And I would say that the critique that I write concerning that book, would I'd write a similar kind of critique in the overall expression of theology that Beth Moore has. Not to mention, just in terms of gender roles, there's some violation that's going on. She preaches in mixed audiences of men and women. That's against the tenor of Scripture. God says a woman is not to teach her exercise authority over a man. When Beth Moore preaches on a Sunday morning at a large church in Atlanta or a large church in Houston, uh, she'll say, well, I'm under the pastor's authority. That's why I'm preaching here. Look, no pastor has authority to give you authority that God expressly forbids. And so there's a lot of really shaky things that are going on. And again, I know she means well, but she, she's just wrong. And uh, it never would have happened 40 years ago in evangelicalism. But there's a lot of things that are happening in evangelicalism today that are just not biblical. And people, because they have not been trained in the scriptures and they've had, you know, now 25 years of, uh, you know, seeker sensitive theology, uh, they're buying into this thing. So like one popular woman's uh, speaker is this lady, uh, Rachel Evans. She's a heretic. She's an utter heretic, you know, now endorsing gay marriage and, um, my son-in-law, who works with uh, the Council on Biblical Manhood and, and Womanhood, he's the executive director for that fine Christian organization, you know, wrote an article just, you know, uh, against uh, Target for their transgender approach that they're now taking. She crucified him. Uh, you know, that's that's sad. And she has a huge following where tens of thousands of evangelical women, as they call themselves, are following her. How how can you follow someone like that? Well, naively, uh, ignorantly, 
not really knowing the scriptures or with an unregenerate mind, not being able to see what the scriptures plainly say. And of course, as we approach the end of the age, the church will become more and more of a mixed bag where the wheat and the tare will be increasingly mixed together. So you'll have more and more people who will say they are saved. Many will say to me on that day, you know, Lord, not only are we saved, but we, we preached in your name. We, we did miracles in your name. We cast out demons in your name. But he will say to them, well, actually, I never knew you. Depart from me. Uh, so these are more and more the kinds of things that we're seeing in evangelicalism today. I think we need a new term uh, other than evangelical, maybe to describe uh, Bible-believing Christians. Anyway, good question. Appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. All right. Uh, Angie from Bluffton writes, Today's Island Packet, this was obviously written a few days ago, Today's Island Packet published a disturbing article written by Rabbi Bloom. The contents were what you hear from any liberal theology group today who claims uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender is something one is born with versus a lifestyle choice. So there's no need to belabor all that. My question is related to one of his comments, uh, which I'm hearing espoused with more frequency. I acknowledge the scriptural injunction against a man having sexual relations with another man, yet... The Bible has many laws we don't observe today. How ironic it is that we choose some laws to be element, uh, eternal rather, while ignoring others. What would be your response to this? Just refer me to a past resource if you already addressed this question before. Well, I have addressed this question before. I did in my series on Romans where I dealt with the issue of clean and unclean meats. Uh, and really just this past Sunday, I briefly addressed it. Uh, helping people to understand how do you sort out certain Old Testament issues from things that the church should obey today under the new covenant. Well, first of all, you know, if the Old Testament law that uh, you're reading is just illustrative of what Christ would ultimately accomplish through his life and ministry, then it's not applicable in this age. So most People, I'm assuming, if not all, that are listening to my voice did not bring an animal sacrifice to church last Sunday. Why? Because, as you recognize, the once and for all sacrifice of Christ uh, discounted the need to bring uh, an Old Testament sacrifice. What baptism today is to the church, where we look back at what Christ has accomplished and we give our confession of faith. When we are baptized, the animal sacrificial system was to the old covenant believer. He was, in essence, expressing his faith that the biblical injunction without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. He was expressing his faith in his desire, his hope, his certainty that God would someday bring Messiah who would be that sacrifice. So God had established a principle early on that there was a need for blood to be sacrificed. There was a need for a savior. Uh, God, when he dealt with Adam and Eve, uh, they, through their own work, had basically what we like to call as theologians, fig leaf religion. Through the work of their own hands, they tried to cover their shame, their sin. And so God uh, killed some animals. He gave them uh, coats, plural, of skin. Uh, Why? Because... Again, he had already given the clear injunction in Genesis 2, 16 and 17 that sin deserves death. The day you eat from that tree, you will die. And of course, they did die that day. 
They died on the inside spiritually. They began to die on the outside physically. So we're born dying. The moment an infant is conceived, they get older and older and older. And with every heartbeat, it's a drum roll towards the grave. And ultimately, if the problem is not fixed before we leave this world, we experience what the Bible calls eternal death, a third type of death in the Bible. And so God established the principle. And so when Cain and Abel came and worshiped, one came on the basis of blood. The other came on the basis of human effort. And God smiled on one and he rejected the other. Now, in a 19th century German theology, they said, well, the issue was not an issue of blood sacrifice. It was an issue of the quality of the sacrifice. Well, there's nothing in the text that indicates that Cain brought less than his best. He might have brought the finest turnips and herbs and things from his garden. But he didn't come in faith. And so when God gives us New Testament commentary on this issue, it tells us that Abel came in faith and therefore his was a better sacrifice. Where does faith come? It comes from what God has revealed. Now, of course, the first verse of scripture had not yet been penned, but God revealed the truth that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And then the Proto-Evangelium given in Genesis 3, 15 and 16, what we call the first gospel is given where God preaches the gospel. And all the way through Genesis, you see picture after picture after picture of what God is going to accomplish through Christ. Even the ark, it's um, one boat, one God, three floors, affirming the triunity of God in one door, uh, to get into the ark. Uh, a couple months ago, I stood on the site where, with Ken Ham, uh, where they are building a life-size ark. It's absolutely incredible. It's three football fields long. And the Amish, of course, have created this gigantic erector set under his leadership and under his design, where piece by piece they're putting together this ark. They expect two million visitors in the first year alone. And one of their goals is not only to show the accuracy and the historicity of the scripture, but to give the plan of salvation to tens of thousands of people month after month after month. It will be, I believe, a great opportunity. And I think it is interesting that uh, just before God destroyed the world, an ark was built. And maybe even before the return of Christ, another ark is being built. And God is like shouting from the heavens. There's one way of salvation. So there's pictures all the way through Genesis without the shedding of blood. And, and Abel understood that. Um, when uh, Peter met Cornelius, or Cornelius if you're a Brit, uh, and shared the gospel with him, he makes a, a fascinating statement concerning the Messiah. Of course, we learn something about Abel that we don't know from the Old Testament in that Jesus indicted the uh, leaders of his day, the religious leaders of his day, with the blood of all the prophets, beginning with Abel through Zechariah. So we learn that Abel was a prophet of God. You say, well, why is that significant? Because in Acts chapter 10, it says, all the prophets preached about Messiah. That would include Abel. And so sometimes, you know, we think of some Old Testament believers and we say, well, you know, they, they didn't really understand much. And, um, you know, Abraham just went outside one night and looked up at the stars and he just believed that he'd have as many descendants as the stars that were in heaven. No, he believed a whole lot more than that. In fact, Paul tells us in Galatians 3, he had the gospel preached to him, not gospel, but the gospel. 
Uh, it's an articular infinitive in the Greek New Testament. He had the gospel preached to him. What's the gospel? I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. How? According to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead. And in Acts ten forty three, of him, of Messiah, of Christ, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Even Abraham is called a prophet. So that could be said of him as well. Now, they didn't know in the progressive revelation of God um, that is now, of course, ceased. I'm not using the term as liberal theologians use it, that Messiah's name would be Yeshua or uh, Jesus or Jesus in, in Greek uh, and in English. But nonetheless, they knew Messiah was going to come, that a Savior would come. And uh, God has only had one way of salvation for all time. And that way of salvation is never, ever, 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 ever changed. So when you try to sort through this issue, getting back to Rabbi Bloom and said, well, you know, why, why aren't we consistent? Because some things are illustrative of what Christ would fulfill through his cross. And so we don't um, apply them to our day. Uh, the ceremonial law is not applicable uh, in that, you know, take all the cleansing laws of the Old Testament. Uh, we don't uh, apply the cleansing laws. Why? Because there's only one way in which God cleanses from sin that was fulfilled in Christ. Uh, we don't apply the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Now, some of my Seventh-day Adventist friends do, but evangelicals do not. And historically, Bible-believing Christians have not. And there's really nothing to sort through. Remember, there are some things that God distinguished Old Testament saints by externally, by the kind of dress they wore, the way they cut their hair. Uh, But now the way God distinguishes his people is internally. And so Jesus said in Mark 7, what defiles a man is not what goes into him and then is eliminated, but what really comes out of his heart. Thus Christ, the Bible says, declared all meats clean. And in the illustration that Peter is given here in Acts 10 that I just read from, It's an illustration that he should not be prejudicial in his approach to Jews or Gentiles and that they have equal footing. And to help him to understand that, he gives them this vision three times over where there's all these different kinds of animals that he said, never, Lord, I can't eat those. Those are unclean. And God, what God has declared clean, let no man call unclean. And his point is, is that he uses an illustration about clean and unclean meats and he applies it to Jews and Gentiles. Of course, God never uses an illustration that has error in it to teach truth. God uses truth to teach truth. So you have to study it carefully. Um, You know, there are some things that are only mentioned once in the Bible, um, but God only has to say it once. Uh, Nowhere in the New Testament does it say you shouldn't marry your sister, but God gives some parameters as to who we can marry or not marry. Uh, Nowhere in the New Testament does it say that a human can, um, it prohibits a human from having an intimate relationship with an animal, but bestiality is as much a sin today as uh, four or five times it's mentioned in the Old Testament. God only has to say it once for it to be true. And I can promise you anything that God calls an abomination in that day is an abomination in our day. For a man to lie with a man is an abomination, still is. Uh, 
But you see, there are people who manipulate the scripture. And so they go to Romans one and they say, well, you know, the, when, when, when Paul talks about God giving people over to, uh, to their sin and he makes this statement, for instance, uh, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that, which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire one towards another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person the due penalty of their error. See, the modern uh, exegete, who is less than faithful, who's really not born again, who, in Peter's words, manipulates the scriptures to their own destruction, they would say, well, what God is doing, what God is saying here is that if he made you homosexual and you have a heterosexual relationship, that that's unnatural. Or if he made you heterosexual and you have a homosexual relationship, that that makes that that is sinful. But if he made you homosexual, then it's okay to have a relationship with a homosexual. That that's a dis, that's a distortion of scripture. Uh, God made it very clear when he institutes marriage, he made them male and female. It was Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Uh, He made it very, very clear that marriage is between a man and a woman, period. But what we are witnessing in our day, I just preached a sermon not long ago called A Nation Without God, is we're seeing God abandoning our nation because we are abandoning him. So we refuse to honor God as God and give him thanks. And we outlaw prayer in the school. Uh, We outlaw Bible reading in the school. We outlaw putting the Ten Commandments on the wall. We outlaw uh, a a child even praying out loud over his lunch. Um, And so God gives us over. And we begin from the 60s and early 70s to move into more of a sexually immoral culture. And so that's exactly what he says. God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity. And so you see more and more heterosexual impurity unfolding in the 80s and the 90s and the tenor of television and all that was being communicated in our culture and advertising became more and more seductive and more and more sensual. And we continued to ignore God. We, we ignored him on the most basic level where we made evolution supreme in our schools. And we denied that there is a creator God, though the creation shouts his in, invisible attributes and his eternal power. And so God gives us over to the next stage, to degrading passions. Uh, there was a time in America where homosexuality was just considered a wicked thing. Now, you might have heterosexuals who at one point said, look, you know, I don't have any problem with someone wanting to sleep with someone they're not married to, but homosexuality, that's another thing. Well, look, one leads to the other. And because our culture did not honor God in the realm of sexual purity, God gave us over to the next phase. Um, There was a time when it was illegal to uh, commit such acts in our nation. We wrote legislation against it, and we should have. Um, Paul says we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. Think about that. He's, he's talking about what um, English um, theologians would call natural law, 
which was based on God's moral law, that a law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for those who are unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever is else contrary to sound teaching. So we make laws against uh, liars and perjurers and homosexuals and kidnappers. Why? Because we recognize it was evil. But now we're getting ready. I think we've really moved into the third phase and we're just starting. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God then gave them over to a depraved mind. Adakimos is the Greek word. Adakimos is something that is tested and found true. Adakimos is just the opposite. And so God gave us over to a depraved mind. Uh, The Slavic translations, I think, capture the Greek well. They render it, God gave them over to an upside down mind. And that's where, where, where we are. And then he lists all these vices, over 20 of them. Being filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossip, slanderers, haters of good, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents. It's an awful list. That's the new America you can expect. Welcome to the new America. We laugh. We think we can mock God. We think we can live without God. And God says, you don't want me? Okay, I'll let you have your own way. You know, I saw on the news a couple of nights ago, all these community leaders in Savannah, it seems like there's a new murder every day. There's four or five shootings and they don't know what to do. And they're calling everyone together and, oh, you know, we, we got to come up with a plan. Everybody's getting shot and killed. That's the new America. That's what you can expect. We've just seen the start of it. It's going to get far, far worse in the days ahead unless this nation repents. And it has to begin with the household of faith and denouncing some of these pseudo evangelicals like Rachel Evans, who many women are following. She's a heretic. Let me just say she's a heretic. Why would an evangelical woman want to embrace some of her teaching? It's absolute heresy. But people are blind in the day that we live in. Mm. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-WAGP980, or email us at tbl at wagp.net. A listener was uh, following up on something you mentioned earlier about gender roles, and uh, he would like to know, Titus 2 clearly describes the gender roles in the church. Now, he'd like to know if a pastor gives authority for a change in these roles, would he be considered an apostate? Also, when some pastors are shown so clearly that they are mistaken, why don't they want to teach truth? Are they deluded or just accepting social norms of what people want? Well, a lot of pastors just like to be liked. I don't know how else to say it. They just like to be liked. And so we have a movement that has now entered into evangelicalism. So, you know, when you have a Beth Moore that's extremely popular in our country, And she's the cash cow for Lifeway Books. You know, they sell her books by the tens of thousands. No one wants to come out against that. You know, you got all these women in the church and they're reading a Beth Moore Bible study. You don't want to say anything bad about Beth Moore. You get all the women in the church mad at you. That's sad. It's really, really sad. But that's the day that we live in. And so um, certainly there are uh, pastors who are lost who have distorted gender roles. And I uh, preached again this sermon recently, One Nation Under God, and in it I documented all these different denominations who first abandoned 
clear gender roles and then later adopted homosexuality as an alternative lifestyle. And now that's where we're going in evangelicalism so that you can have a Rachel Evans who is uh, teaching that it's okay to uh, embrace some of these new teachings. Look, if it's new, it's not true. If you are understanding the scriptures in a way that no one else has understood it in 2000 years of church history, I guarantee that you have distorted what God has plainly said. And so um, there are others who are believers, but maybe they're in ignorance. They've not studied the scripture. So I did a series recently, actually two Sundays where I dealt with the roles of men and women in the church. Uh, you can go to searchthescriptures.org and you can listen to those. And I deal with all the passages that people use to say that women can be pastors, whether it's Miriam or Deborah or whatever. Look, you can make the Bible mean whatever you want it to mean. You take a verse out of context, you'll distort what it says. Um, to give you an extreme example, the Bible says twice over in Psalm 14 and Psalm 50, in the English Bible, as we number the Psalms, there is no God. But in the original context, it says the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. That gives it an entirely different meaning. So people are sloppy with the scriptures or they're grappling for some scripture that they can use to say, well, it's okay for women to be preachers and I can preach that as a pastor and not feel bad about it. No, 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 no. And what we're doing now is we're sowing the seeds. Whenever there's gender distortion in the roles, that leads to other gender problems. So you, you will feminize young boys. You will masculinize young girls. And uh, you'll set them up for the sin of homosexuality and to embrace it. And that's what we're witnessing. And this, of course, is what Jesus said would happen at the end of the time, the end of the age, and the last of the last days. Okay, we've got about a minute and a half. I think we've got uh, time to ask one more question. What is an Orthodox Christian? Well, I don't know if I can answer that in a minute. Maybe we should come back to it because there's two usages of the word. If you mean capital O, then you're referring to the denomination, so to speak, um, that's usually uh, called the Eastern Orthodox Church. It usually is named after the country that it's in, the Armenian Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, and so forth. Uh, they're very Roman Catholic in their theology. Uh, they would teach the perpetual virginity of Mary, uh, prayer for the dead, baptizing infants for the remission of original sin, um, the possibility of getting saved after you die, the possibility of losing salvation, uh, that tradition carries the same authority as the Bible. Uh, so a lot of uh, a lot of just bad doctrine, although there are certainly some Orthodox Christians who carry that label that are born again, that don't embrace all those things. But generally speaking, that's where they stand. Just like if I use the term Roman Catholic, well, you got some footholds where, you know, or here's some general things. But there's always an exception to the rule. So that's one usage. But then there's the small O. Orthodox Christian. That's a whole nother usage. So maybe we should come back to that next time. We're out of time for today, but thank you for being with us here on the Bible Line. If you have a question, you can email us at tbl, the Bible Line, 